Hello there. My name's Phil Ryan and I'd like to welcome you to the Story High podcast. As a writer, I believe in the power of the short story to entertain us and sometimes even make us think for a bit, but always to fascinate and beguile and make us laugh out loud too if we can. So simply put, this podcast is the Story Hive, the home of amazing audio stories. And in this weekly podcast, we're going to be playing you just three short fiction stories to entertain and hopefully amaze you. Most of them run around 16, 18, 20 minutes and less, and they're absolutely ideal for a quick break from your busy day. And of course, they cover a very wide range of genres, so we think there's something for everyone. Now, over the coming weeks, we're going to be delving briefly, briefly, into how to write your own short stories. And we'll talk about writing and all the things that surround it. Now, sadly, eventually, we're going to have to run some small adverts between these stories just to help us bring the work to you for absolutely free. But without further ado, here is our first story. And it's from today's three-story collection, and it's called The Retiree. The little girl's body wrapped in its velvet-cushioned embrace. The crematorium was full, mostly people from the estate, families, children, crying. There was to be a gathering later in the community centre. It was beyond understanding. And Ludmilla Petrova sat at the back, her eyes red. Her darling Kishara, just twelve years old. And she rose stiffly, her eight-year-old bones making her wince. And the coffin slid through the curtain. Ludmilla Petrova blew a kiss. Rest in peace, my little love. Rest in peace. The mood at the community centre still sombre. A twelve-year-old girl stabbed to death. There was muffled talk, knife crime, gun crime. The estate was out of control. The police had come, but nothing would change. Between the drug dealers and the gangs, it had become a dark place. Few ventured out at night, not locally. They'd even put a security guard downstairs now, to get into all the blocks, you needed a code. Ludmilla Petrova nibbled at a Jaffa cake. She sighed, eating beyond her. It had been a nice place once to live. It had been her husband, Geoffrey. He'd got them on the list. That had been fifty years ago. He'd gone to heaven ten years ago, and she fingered her wedding ring. He had loved her so much, and she'd adored him. The room was getting hotter, and someone had opened the double doors, and she saw Kishara's mother Dawn, an immigrant like herself, her from Russia, Dawn from Ghana, a wonderful mother, a good friend too, and she watched her face, tear-streaked, defiant. She was addressing a group of teenagers and they all just looked defeated. Dawn's voice rose. She was just twelve, you hearing me? 
Why somebody stab a 12-year-old girl? You tell me, yes? The question hung in the air, unanswerable. Soon, the caretaker arrived, and most people had begun to drift away by now. The moment, over. The local councillor had come and was now hugging Dawn. Ludmila Petrova muttered under her breath, another photo opportunity. She felt a little tired. She'd missed her usual afternoon nap, and pausing to hug Dawn and be enveloped in a huge embrace and a flood of tears, she walked down the concrete steps and back across the children's play area. The estate consisted of four great grey tower blocks, 1960s build, grey, a few desultory plants, and they reached towards the sky like stone fingers. Dawn was in Tybridge on the 10th floor. Ludmilla had a small house in the row opposite. Geoffrey had been insistent. His wife would have a house. His position as a shop steward at the local car factory making him eligible. And she opened the creaking, tall, barred steel gate. They were almost prisoners, she thought. The front garden was small but abundant, and the tiny back garden even more so. It was full of flowers. Geoffrey had had an allotment up by the railway lines, and she pictured his face. My wife will see nothing but flowers, not carrots and cauliflowers, he told her, the romantic fool. They'd met at a young communist rally. He was so impassioned, a true believer, and she worked at the Russian embassy, community liaison. It had been love at first sight. The kettle whistled, and she poured the water onto the black tea in its strainer. Good Russian tea, strong, dark, much flavour. And now the tears rolled down her face. Little Kashara, gone. Outside in the street, a car drove by, music blaring. She tutted, such people. Little Kashara. They'd met. Six years ago. It was silly, really. Ludmilla had slipped on some ice. It was her own fault. But Dawn and her daughter had rushed to her aid, and they'd helped her back from the shops. Solicitous and so kind. Typical of Dawn. But then, after playing in the children's area, little Kashara had been sent every day for a week to check up on her. And they had just clicked. The little girl, the old woman. Babushka. Grandmother. Kishara stumbled over the words, but hugged her tightly. And she remembered the first time she said it to her. Her heart had soared. Dawn had insisted. We were family. Ludmilla Petrova looking after Kishara. Babysitting. Dawn was a nurse, and her shifts at the local hospital were long. But it didn't matter now. Kishara blossomed. Babushka was there. 
to tuck her into her bed, to read her a story, her favourite book, Russian folk tales, of course, and a room in the house next to Ludmilla Petrova's. It had made sense. Sometimes Dawn had weeks of night shifts. Babushka was there to help with homework, to brush her wild hair. Ludmilla Petrova took her to school, made her breakfast, made her tea, and nothing had been said. Bills were shared. No words needed. Family. She'd often thought her life had a new purpose. To be loved and to love again. A bundle of joy and smiles. Cheeky little monkey. So many years alone. And then so much love. So much love. Her tea grew cool. She dreaded the next task. Kashara's room. She had to do this alone. She had to do this now. She didn't know why it couldn't just be left. And briskly she began putting things into boxes. There wasn't much. She'd been such a special little thing. And Ludmilla Petrova could hardly breathe. Her heart breaking at every turn. The doorbell rang and she pulled the curtain. It was Mrs Khan from next door. She, of course, had been at the funeral. She'd brought food. She always did. Her youngest, Ravi, was a security guard at Forest House, the third block. The woman's face scowled. Those bloody bastards, she hissed. Apparently a rumour had got around. No one had come forward. Kashara's killers protected by the deadly and destructive code the gangs lived by. But now people were saying it was one of the C-Dis crew, a local collection. Ludmilla Petrova knew them. They made their presence felt regularly, gathering outside the kebab shop in the precinct. Boys, really. Gone bad. Very bad. Drugs. Theft. Violence. Mrs Khan shook her head. Where are the bloody police? In their cars, all I can say. And she banged the table to emphasise her point. Who will protect us is what I want to know. But after a cup of tea and a piece of apple cake, she left. A wonderful woman, thought Ludmilla Petrova. A good neighbour, kind and thoughtful. And she returned to her task. It was too much. Just too much. And curling into a ball, she lay on Kashara's bed, sobbing uncontrollably, her gaunt, thin frame shaking and heaving. Three hours passed. Then she sat up. She nodded to herself. There was more to do. The next day she went to Dawn's. Flowers filled the corridors and they sat together and cried and laughed until soon it was getting dark outside and she leaned heavily on her stick, her gait steadying. The night air was warm and the street lights were now bright and she fumbled in her handbag 
a newspaper now tucked under her arm, and steadily she walked along up towards the precinct, low on milk again. Kishara's face filled her mind. Her granddaughter, her joy in this bleak place, now ripped from her. Life wasn't fair. She saw them first. What had she been thinking? It was Friday. The small group of boys then saw her. They were masters of their kingdom. The local gang, the See This crew. Apparently it was a song title. Ludmilla Petrova gripped her stick, her other hand now holding her newspaper. One of them called out, Hey you, old bitch! They moved like a wolf pack, their faces now wide grins, and she tried to walk faster. It was no use. The shops and safety were between her and them. Where she now stood was dark and shadowed. The tallest boy stood in her way, and she fixed his gaze with her own. You kill my granddaughter! Her voice was firm and crisp, and one of the boys laughed. Crazy old cow you've been tripping on, do we? His accent as fade as his Versace t-shirt, and Ludmilla Petrova repeated herself. You kill my granddaughter. Her name was Kashara. The tall boy turned to look at his friends. He made a noise with his lips. Fuck you, granny. We kill who we like. Little bitch probably deserve it. You get me? He paused. Nice handbag. Me want to see what in it. And he pulled a wide-bladed butcher's knife from under his jacket. The memory of Geoffrey's face, strong, suddenly in her mind. That first meeting, that first kiss, his faith in her, unshakable. And she breathed in, slowly. Her newspaper fell to the floor, and raising her silenced pistol, she shot each of them. Five shots, efficiently, swiftly, Headshots, clean. <laughs> the noise of the traffic masking any sound, and a distant car base boomed in the night. Ugh. She groaned as she bent down. There was a crossword in the paper, and plus, she picked up the spent cartridge cases, her old training kicking in, drilled into her, leave no trace. And efficiently, she slid another full magazine into her pistol. Wonderful, Geoffrey. He'd thought communism was the answer, and meeting a girl from the Russian embassy beyond his wildest dreams. Community liaison. That's what she told him. And she'd loved him to distraction. How could she tell him the truth? Her real job? In Section 8. Assassin tasked with eliminating enemies of the state. Her bosses had approved. Marriage was a good idea, they'd said. Embedding agents was very efficient. But Geoffrey had never known. She'd given him her heart. It wasn't fake. She loved him 
to the stars and back. The tragedy of her inability to bear children talked through and accepted. And when he was at work, she spent hours on the range beneath the embassy or on assignment. And even to this day, she checked her equipment, her weapons, cleaning and maintenance drilled into her. Old habits. The fall had come. First the Berlin Wall, then the collapse in 1991, the chaos. Russia in turmoil. Half the staff at the embassy had vanished overnight, and Ludmilla had taken her own records, all her equipment. No one cared back then. Then she'd taken a very simple decision. She would live and work and stay with her beloved Geoffrey. Soon she had a part-time job, interpreting at a publishing house. Life had been different then. Good. Then she'd lost Geoffrey. Life had been so dark for so long. And then sunshine. Her little ray of sunshine. Her greatest joy. Kashara. Her granddaughter. Her beautiful, clever, funny, loving granddaughter. And a tear ran down her face. She straightened her back. No time for that right now. She felt a mix of emotions. Calm, pleased, sad, her face a mask, a heart still utterly broken. Nothing would bring Kashara back. She knew that. Her old instructor's message, never make it personal. She leaned on her stick her bag heavier with the pistol. This had been personal. They wouldn't hurt anyone else. She looked out across the estate, the gate to her house. Something had to be done. These animals, these criminals, running around unchecked, and her bag swung against her old hip, the Makarov pistol and silencer. She had thousands of rounds, all her old equipment. It wasn't too far-fetched. And she felt a wintry smile cross her face. It would be nice to have purpose again. But first, some tea. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. And now, here comes our second story. And this one's called My Boy Benson. And a quick spoiler alert, you may need a tissue. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget the first time I saw him. He was in an orange box, under a blanket, on the back seat of my dad's car in a garage. It was Christmas Day. We'd been giving out presents and that. Then Dad said he had to nip out with some milk and potatoes as it was getting a bit low. And he said he'd just go to the corner shop. Well, I just sat up Lee playing with my new Transformer toy. And then my grand called out and said, could I help Dad bring the shopping in? So I put my new slippers on and went through the kitchen. And I didn't really notice, but there was Mum and Gran looking at each other. And then I went out and there was Dad grinning ear to ear when he saw me. 
Anyway, he, he quickly recovered and he said, could I get that box on the back seat for him? And that is when I first saw him. A little black nose peeking out. I nearly dropped the box, but Dad had it, you know, tight in his big old grip. So he took him inside, and there he was. My dog. My first dog. I was seven years old. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. And he was, he honestly was. I knew I loved him, but the first moment he, he nibbled my ear. I couldn't stop cuddling him all Christmas Day. Now, we lived just outside London, I up the Thames, way up by Dartford, you know, my family being river folk. It's an ancient tradition, I got told, you know, going back to Elizabethan times when they were known as watermen. We had a family business, throwing stuff with different companies, and my uncles and aunties, well, they all worked together, you know. Chapel and Sons, the sign said, above the warehouse door by the dock. We had the three boats, the Pride of Connemara, the Jackson and the Wallace, and their names were, they're all part of an old family tradition. I had three brothers, two sisters, and I had loads of cousins, and we just played together all the time. We, we was a big family, and it was great. But best of all, now, I had Benson. He was a black Labrador, Mum said. Dad got him off a geezer in a pub by Watling, and we got a book about him from the vet. And I had to walk him every day, and I did. I called him Benson after cigarettes my mum smoked, because I liked the name, and it, it suited him, I think. <laughs> it snowed that Christmas, and Benson, well, he loved jumping in and out of it. His tiny tail got like a blur. He was a very good boy. He sat and calm when I called him. And Gran said he was the nicest, well-behaved pup she'd ever seen. <laughs> it's funny, but looking back now, after all these years, do you know, I was aware of all the love around me. Dad and Mum and Gran and Benson, my uncles and aunties, even my cousins. You see, we was a strong family. Long established in the area, Mum said. Well, like all those big families, we... We was a tight-knit bunch. Mum's sisters marrying Dad's brothers and all that stuff. And our house, well, it seemed to be the meeting point for everyone. Dad was the oldest, Mum said, so he was like in charge. His brothers were Dave and Steve and Alan and Pete, and they were all a couple of years behind him. But people, they come and they went all the time. Like I said, we was a big family. My poor old granddad, well, he wasn't well. Well, Mum said... And he had to go and live in a special home, and we all visited him every Sunday. But I was so excited to take Benson for the first time. But when we got there, Mum said there weren't no dogs allowed. So we all took it in turns to sit in the car with him. He was such a good boy. He didn't bark or growl or nothing, no. He just sat with whoever was there. And then he had his tummy rubbed, which was his favourite. As soon as he thought you caught his eye, he had this trick of suddenly flopping backwards across your lap with all his legs sticking straight up in the air. He did it so fast, it was like a little blur. He loved his tummy being rubbed. As soon as you'd start, he'd close his eyes real tight 
He made a sort of wah, wah, noise. Mum, mum said dogs shouldn't be able to make noises like that. And we even looked it up in a book. But my Benson, he weren't an ordinary dog. I, I told him he was special and that wouldn't be in the book. And that made Dad laugh so hard his glasses fell off. I don't know why. It didn't matter though. It really didn't. You see, he was my puppy and I loved him with all my heart. Christmas went by and then spring finally come. And my Benson, well, he, he'd grown a lot bigger now. He had a shiny black coat and big dark eyes. Dad said he was a pedigree, which is a sort of posh name for being special in dog language. And Mum, she got him a really fancy collar in leather with his name and address on it. And a long lead that Gran said the man in the pet shop had recommended. Well, I read about him, all about him in my book. And so he got him some toys. But his favourite one was a big rubber lobster my Uncle Pete had brought him. It squeaked when Benson grabbed it, which drove Dad mad till the squeaker fell out. But Benson, he still carried it just the same, trotting around with it, asking people to throw it for him. And Mum, well, she fussed over him worse than a baby, Dad said. Once she made him a scarf in case it got cold at night. And then Dad laughed and reminded that she put one of his old sheepskin coats in his basket plus a hot water bottle. So he weren't going to hardly freeze, was he? And then he added, most mornings when he'd come into my room to get me up to school, there was Benson in my bed next to me. His little basket downstairs pretty much permanently empty. I really hated leaving him though, you know, when I had to go to school. But me mum and gran, they looked after him proper. I knew, I knew. And it got better eventually. But there he'd be, in the window, watching out for me when I come back down the road. And we had this game where I'd pretend to duck down. And he'd bark and he'd wag his tail until gran would come out and tell us to pack it in and come inside with me tea. Look, I suppose if you'd never had a dog, when you were a kid like, you know, a lot of this must sound like, well, nonsense. It was everything to me. Me and Benson. Him always pleased to see me, no matter what the time or the place was. I wasn't a lonely kid. Nah, you couldn't be in our house. Like I said, there was people coming and going. Blokes to see my dad, my mum's friends from Bingo, my brothers, my sisters, the cousins and nephews, and my mates from school. My dad used to take us out. On the boats, you know, sometimes. And we go right up the river, to the sea virtually. You see, Dad had a mate with a mooring up by his Tilbury. And me and my mates and Benson, well, we'd splash about and we'd plan a narrow shingle beaches. And we'd look for treasure and driftwood and stuff. It all just sort of floated in on the tide. Sometimes we'd even swim a bit, but only if Dad or one of two of my uncles was in the water looking after us, you know. We were river kids, remember that? We knew the dangers. Dad had drummed it into everyone. But my Benson, he could swim as good as a fish. He'd leap into the water without any fear, his strong legs whizzing away beneath him, his little head stuck up in front, looking about him, looking about him. Dad sometimes said he thought it was part seal, and he'd go and find a geezer he bought him from and ask for half his money back. But he didn't mean it. He was only joking. But my Benson, he, he did look like one of those seals sometimes. You know, when they come out of the water, it was all wet and shiny black. 
as I was drying him off with a towel my gran gave me. We went everywhere we could together. I could not. As soon as I come home, he'd be right next to me, watching me, licking me, asking for tummy rubs, and he'd sit while I did my own work. He was on my lap if I watched the telly. He was always next to me at dinner time, with mum saying I wasn't to feed him at the table, which I tried not to do, but dad kept doing it when mum wasn't looking, so he did all right. It was funny, but he never seemed to get any older, but I suppose I did in a way. I turned 12 that summer, and I got taller, my legs shooting up. But Benson, he just stayed sleek and the same size. And he didn't care what size I was, because he just loved me. I could see it in his eyes sometimes, the way he'd look at me, you know. And I loved him. I told Mum, I said he was my good boy, and I knew he wouldn't change. He couldn't. He'd curled up inside my heart from the first time I saw him. And Mum said it was marvellous how good we was together. And as the next years passed, I think, if anything, our little link grew stronger. Even when I started meeting girls. Because Benson had to come along. There he'd sit, patiently, by my feet. Or he'd wander around a few feet away, just lie down. I even sneaked him in the cinema a couple of times. You see, if my life had a pattern, he was a part of its thread. The same as mum and dad and gran and everyone else. We always had a present for him at Christmas and mum always made him a special part on his birthday. And gran, well, she said he was part of our family. And she was right, he was. All sorts of stuff happened, you know, over the years. Poor old granddad died. Cousin Jody ran off with some geezer from Scotland. Uncle Danny got arrested with something to do with his tax. But our family was strong, though, you know, like an army. We'd come together, help each other out. My dad was head of it, just the same as my granddad had been before, well, before he got old. And Grand said one day it would be my job, one day, but I didn't mind because it, it seemed all right. And anyway, I had Benson, my constant shadow, sleek and black, that tail of his whipping about. My good boy. Now, to be straight, I weren't too good at school. I, I, I tried my best, but Dad said it was all right anyway because I just worked for him, which was what I wanted. I'd grown up on the boats and in the yards, and even though the business was changing, there was a real future for me, you know, I could see it. And Mum said I weren't to worry, so I didn't. Christmas is past, and then I turned 16 that, that year, and it was coming up the old summer holidays, and like I said, I'd grown up helping out and learn about what our family business did. I was working with Uncle Pete at the yard most weekends. And on this particular day, it was lovely. I, I remember it well. I can still see me looking back at that school when I walked out the gates. And I was thinking, I'd probably never go back if, if Dad said it was all right. And I was in a strange mood, and I knew it. 
I kissed Stacy Solomon a lot the night before up the park. And my head had felt off all that day. I really liked her. I mean, really a lot. And for some strange reason, I hadn't been able to get around my head for weeks. Anyway, I'd met her mum and her dad and they run a chain of fish and chip shops down in town and they'd seemed to like me, which was good. And of course, they'd loved Benson, the goofball, who'd immediately insisted on tummy rubs the first time he met them, as always. My secret weapon, mum said. So life was good, despite all the whirling of my thoughts and that. So there I was, walking along, the sun burning on my neck. And I walked back off the ice street, you know, up towards where we was. But as I turned the corner, I could see my mum. And some of the neighbours all crouching down in the street like, and I don't know why, but I just started to run. Then I could see it, a red car, parked all sort of funny like right across the road. And I hardly heard the geezer say, I didn't see him, he'd come out of bleeding nowhere, before I fell to my knees. There was Benson, my boy wrapped in my mum's good cardigan, her holding him to her chest and her face, it was, it was all white. And she saw me, and I just gathered him up, careful not to squeeze him. And he whimpered a bit, and, and then he stopped, and he was all limp. And then his, his big eyes opened, and he saw me, and he tried to wag his tail. And he stretched his little nose up and he licked my face. And then he was gone. My heart breaking in that second. So sorry about this. Sorry. Anyway, anyway. Dad turned up and then the police. And the geezer, he got arrested for being drunk in charge of a vehicle. And we buried my pencil on his favourite beach, with his lobster toy wrapped in Dad's old sheepskin and the scarf Mum had made for him. And I cried for a month. Longer, probably. My heart was shattered. I'm, so, I'm sorry about this. What proud I am. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a grown man now. I've had my share of troubles and I've lost a few folk, but... Daft as it sounds, and probably terrible too. My heart never broke like that before. And I hope it won't ever again. You see, I'd lost the most precious thing I'd ever owned. My boy Benson. My good boy. My best friend. I still miss him. But, but of all the time we spent together, he honestly taught me one thing, and it was about love. Understanding it, you know. I loved him, and he knew it. And he loved me, and I knew it. And Gran said so. She said it was all about unconditional love. Because that's the only way it should be. It's the only way I know. 
And I'll tell you what else I know. When I die, you'll be waiting for me. Up outside at pearly gates. Wagging his tail. My Benson. My good boy. Okay then, well, if you've recovered from that, and I have to tell you when I wrote it, but more importantly, when I actually had to record it, I lost it. I really did. It reminded me of, well, it reminded me of a dog I had when I was a kid, and that was kind of the idea once I wrote the story. Anyway, here's the final story today, and this one's called The Demonstration. And I'm not going to give too much away, but get ready for some craziness. Most lower-level criminals are not bright. Many are cunning in a sneaky way, but not bright. The very bottom layers we used to call pond life. They were the dumbest of them all, you know. In criminal hierarchy terms, you may have heard the word foot soldiers. In other words, the ones that usually go to Nick and take the rap for the big boys. Cases with these people rarely reach my desk, but every now and again, one or two did. And if they did, there was something special about the case. So this is the demonstration. In big urban areas, there's lots of crime. It's a sad but inevitable fact. You cram millions of people together and crime occurs. It ranges from the small but annoying stuff, car crime, low-level opportunist burglary, mugging, phone snatching, small drug dealing, and it can go up a few levels to the serious stuff. Now, the perpetrators of the smaller crimes are usually those you find making up large sections of our prison populations. The simple reason being they're just not that bright. One such individual, let's call him Munib, age 23, was a member of this happy band of failures. Like his compatriots, he was known to the local Nick and the local magistrate. Now, according to the report, he had a friend and ally, one Jez Rahman, age 22, another tow rag, and he was, like Munib, basically an annoyance to the wider community and everyone else. Now, one of my favourite expressions is the law of unexpected consequence. And these two certainly found themselves in a situation that can be best described so over their heads they were basically in danger of drowning. Now, although it requires a lot of paperwork, one of the most effective ways local police can sift out the bad guys from the good is the random car stop. The key is its randomness and constantly changing location. It's also quite expensive to put together in terms of police resources and manpower terms, but hey-ho, that's modern policing. No more an exercise in accountancy than crime fighting. The traffic stop. It's a simple premise. You choose a decent-sized bit of road, preferably a wide side main artery. You find a long corner or a bit of it that's around a bend, ideally. Then you string out your colleagues in vans and cars to stop anyone trying to flee the scene. Now, finally, you make sure your vehicles aren't totally obvious. And then two of your colleagues smilingly flag down random vehicles. They can then proceed to have a friendly chat about crime prevention and send the happy members of the public on their way. Now, you would be surprised, however, at the incredible amount of stolen vehicles, illegal weapons, drugs and other contraband this turns up. Also, not to mention outstanding warrants for arrest. Said perpetrators... Completely cautioned, arrested and whisked away in the waiting vans, whilst another part of the team log and sort everything else out. It is, as I say, time-consuming and expensive, but it's just one tool in the police's fight against bad people. Now, 
As far as Inspector Nick Garcia was concerned, this was just another regular day. His team were in place, they'd already nicked five people in the first 30 minutes, and as stops go, it was reeling in a good catch. Nothing particularly contentious or interesting. That was until our two Atlas morons, Moniev and Jez, showed up. According to their later interview, the sequence of events went as followed. They'd been out cruising late, three weeks earlier, in their souped-up 2009 Subaru Impreza, complete with the obligatory giant spoiler, giant stereo and undercar lighting. Now, on an impulse, they decided to leave the city, stop annoying the locals and head up a motorway and avail themselves of a full English breakfast at one of the nearer, larger services. Now, finding a service station that suited them, they had duly gone inside and had indeed enjoyed the finest breakfast £4.99 could provide. However, upon arriving, they'd also noticed that one section of the very large car park had in fact lost all its security and public lighting. Now, our two masterminds concluded quickly that if there was no power in said area, it was likely any security cameras were also non-operative. And the time being around two o'clock in the morning, and the place still reasonably busy, they decided to nip out around the back of the building and they made their way into the darkened section, see if they could nick anything. Now, after checking various cars and lorry handles, they came across a large dark truck and, to their delight, gained entry. Careful not to arouse attention, they sensibly worked in the dark, and between them, they dragged a large, heavy box out, thinking it to be building tools, which commanded a fair price on the criminal sales market. Now delighted at their success, they continued under darkness, covering the large, heavy box with a broad tartan blanket they'd brought. The purpose of said blanket, to deaden the sound of breaking glass if they came across a window they wished to break. You'll be aware that leaving things in your car in plain sight attracts such criminals to nick it. So now you know why you can't hear the glass shattering. Anyway, very carefully they moved their car around, loaded the box in the back and off they went, happy with their night's work. Full of breakfast and now tired, they returned to Jez's flat on the Primrose estate and pausing in parking up in Moniv's lock-up garage, they went up the wooden hills to Bedfordshire and crashed out on the two couches. Jez's grandmother being the actual tenant of the flat. All had gone well. And their statement said they rose late the next day and then went to the garage and the next afternoon to view their spoils. Moniv stating that... He thought it was some kind of generator thing in a green box, which amazingly, and I'm convinced of this, he actually believed. Jez seemed to concur, and so now they planned who to sell it to. Now, this is where their plan slightly got derailed. As all tiny fish criminals learn, in the giant pond of criminality, there are always bigger fish, much bigger fish, will eat them. So they carefully figured out who to take their ill-gotten gains to. Enter onto our stage now one Mr. Charlton McKenzie, a gentleman originally from the Caribbean, who'd set himself up as what you would possibly know as a fence, or what we would call a receiver of stolen goods. Charlton was a very smart guy, and he generally kept a very low profile. He'd been away at Her Majesty's pleasure only once in his long and ill-distinguished career, and he did not plan to ever go away again, according to his statement. He was also a very well-read man, a lover of poetry and, crucially, a fan of documentaries. And it was his documentary knowledge that first alerted him to the fact that what Dumb and Dumber had brought to him 
wasn't in fact, as they confidently stated, a wicked generator box that would suit local building geezer, but was in fact a specialist crate containing some NLAW devices, the truck they had robbed being in fact part of a military transport, one or two hapless soldiers later being both in very deep hot water due to lack of security. Forgive me using a direct pinch off Google, but to accurately describe it, I think it's best. An LAW, or Next Generation Light Anti-Tank Weapon, simply stops tanks dead in their tracks. Weight in just 12.5 kilograms, an L-Law is a portable shoulder launch weapon system that can be effectively used by a single operator. Its armour-piercing warhead can destroy a heavily protected modern battle tank with one shot, and the system is highly effective at ranges between 20 and 800 metres. In his own words, Charlton nearly sawed himself, that was edited for decency reasons, and he asked the dynamic duo to immediately leave his place of business, the Star Cafe and Grill. And that's when the next part of our report begins. The Superboys were torn now. They had to simply abandon their ill-gotten gains, or write it off, or find another buyer. So now our two twits would-be sellers hit upon another great idea. They'd watched an online video of an end-law in action, and somehow, incredibly, had come to the conclusion there'd be a great tool to be used in the building demolition game. Jez's cousin working for a small local general building and demolition company. Now, the owner-operator of this company, another lovely gentleman, not unknown to my police colleagues, after two curious incidents of metal stripping from large local construction sites. No charges were ever brought, but suspicions fairly and squarely pointed the finger at Mr. Smith. The same Mr. Smith, who incredibly actually entertained the idea from our two brilliant masterminds, that indeed the speedy and fast and best of all, highly cheap, demolition of a building could indeed be achieved by the deployment of one of their handy, lightweight N-Law devices. So, after agreeing the rather odd sum of 750 quid and 60 pence with a money-back guarantee, if not completely satisfied, they all agreed to test the boys' theory of speedy demolition and an abandoned large industrial estate just outside the capital. Now, Mr Smith decided in the interest of his own personal safety to have the dynamic idiots test their end-law on a building he'd selected, a large, long, red brick-built machine shed, the boys having now spent three days assiduously viewing YouTube videos and reading an online manual in the weapons deployment. Now, according to their later statement, the test drive has arrived, and they all met just after lunchtime at an unnamed location, handily not too far from a nearby motorway for ease of access. The equipment was set up, as was Mr Smith's camera phone, and it was time for Maneeb and Jez to demonstrate their prowess, slightly underestimating their own ability and operating a highly complex military piece of hardware. Astonishingly, however, according to the military report attached to the file, they did indeed actually manage to fire the N-Law. The missile, however, missing their chosen target by some 8,000 yards and actually striking a much larger building off to the left. This building also containing Mr Smith's car, a 2010 Range Rover, this vehicle then being blown some 100 feet into the air upon the missile detonating. 
the resulting fireball and smoke from the explosion attracting the attention of a phalanx of motorway patrol officers on motorbikes who'd been some half a mile distant when they observed what their leading sergeant later described as some kind of very large explosion, which they duly investigated. And at this stage, our boys left the scene in what can only be described as a hurry. The unfortunate Mr Smith, however, slightly put out as the destruction of his only means of egress from the scene of absolute devastation, and I particularly liked his assertion in his original statement that he had, in actual fact, pulled off from the motorway after feeling very unwell. He had seen a track to the factory site. He had parked up to recover himself, and then left his vehicle to answer a private and pressing call of nature, when to his surprise his car must have somehow exploded this he felt due to a faulty fuel line. Well, shortly after this occurrence, when later stopped on the return to the city, much to their surprise and my colleague Inspector Garcia's, the Super Duo's boot was found in fact to be holding a large green military storage case containing four more NLAW devices. Adding to this, the unfortunate and completely incriminating camera phone footage taken by the now carless and in custody Mr Smith, and the case did not particularly trouble the prosecutors. It greatly troubled my military colleagues who immediately sealed all the evidence files and impressed upon all concerned the need for silence. Needless to say, the idiots received rather long prison terms, despite their protestations of ignorance. The law taken a dim view of two happy lads carrying enough firepower in their boot to devastate large areas of the capital. And I finally return to the laws of unintended consequence. You see, however it happens, a crime is still a crime. Villains have to be caught, no matter how stupid they are. But remember, every time they get caught. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one. And do remember, listening every week, we've got new stories every single week. Three stories, as I said at the beginning. Now, just so you're aware, these are specially curated stories and they're taken from the Story Hive itself, which is our main platform. And you can find that at the three W's, thestoryhive.co.uk. And you'll find tons and tons of material on there. And of course, we're on every social media platform we could find our way to stick ourselves on. So if you want to look us up, follow us, any help or support is always hugely appreciated. So all I can say just before I say goodbye is I hope the world holds some fun and games for you today. Bye now. Mm -hmm.